exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, two U.S. US airmen have been rescued after ejecting from their F-15 warplane just before it crashed during Allied operations in eastern Libya, according to the BBC. The plane appeared to suffer mechanical failure near the rebel stronghold of Benghazi, the U.S. military said. The jet came down after a third night of U.S.-led coalition attacks on Muammar Gaddafi forces aimed at enforcing a U.S. resolution to protect civilians. In national news today, at least half the U.S. public approves of President Barack Obama's military action in Libya, despite growing criticism from Republicans and some Democrats in Congress, according to Reuters. A CBS News poll released today said just 29 percent of Americans disapprove of Obama's handling of the situation in Libya, where a U.S.-led air and naval force has established a no-fly zone over much of the country. And tune in for more on the conflict in Libya later in the hour with our guest Salah Hassan of the MSU, MSU's Muslim Studies program. In Michigan News, Nordex USA Incorporated and Michigan-based BB Community Wind Farm are announcing plans for construction of a wind farm in Gratiot County, according to the Associated Press. The turbines for the farm will be manufactured at Nordex Plan in Jonesboro. The company says that Chicago-based Nordex will provide more than 100 new wind turbines that are designed specifically for low-wind sites. The turbine includes longer blades that Nordex says produces an average of 15% more power than previous turbines. And in the studio, we have Wolfgang Bauer of the Department of Physics and Astronomy, and he is here to talk about nuclear power as it relates to the disaster in Japan, as well as its future as a carbon-free source of power here in the United States. Welcome to the show, Professor Bauer. Thank you. So what is nuclear power, and where does it come from in nature? Well, nuclear power is one of the few power sources on Earth that don't come from the sun, um, at least not in the way that we're using it right now. So nuclear power is delivered by fission, that, that means splitting of uranium uh, nuclei. And um, each uranium nucleus releases an unbelievably small amount of energy, but there's also an even more unbelievably large number of nuclei in each gram of matter. And so uh, of all the power sources that we know, this is the most efficient one for us to harness. Um, so the splitting of uranium uh, as a power source has been known uh, for a good hundred years now. Um, and the only thing that we know is more powerful as a power source is actually putting small nuclei together. That's called fusion. Um, why we can, uh, we know about fusion theoretically and practically, and while it even has been used in nuclear weapons, we haven't been able to extract useful energy in the lab out of it. So nuclear fission releases harmful byproducts. Each uranium nucleus decays into two smaller nuclei and then some neutrons. And uh, if the, the plant is correct, uh, correctly constructed, the neutrons are then hitting other nuclei and inducing them into fission. And that's called a chain reaction. And if the chain reaction is not moderated, uh, it, it creates a runaway uh, reaction and basically turns uh, into a nuclear bomb. Uh, but if it's correctly moderated, so if, if just the right amount of neutrons are let through, uh, then we can have um, a, a very large uh, source of electric power this way. So for what happened at uh, Fukushima Daiichi in Japan, was that a reaction? Did that create a nuclear bomb and that's what created the explosion? Or was that just completely different than what you just explained? No, the... Um, the Chernobyl accident uh, in Russia, or, or in Ukraine, I should say, um, that was the equivalent of a nuclear bomb. Uh, this was a runaway reaction that blew the entire reactor apart. What is happening uh, still in Japan right now is slightly different. Um, so um, if I could just step back just a little bit, the, the nine-point earthquake uh, off the shore of Japan actually caused the nuclear power plants to be shut down. They have six reactors. Three of them were in operation. Three were shut down for maintenance. And uh, when the reactors are shut down, of course, they don't deliver electrical power to the grid anymore. 
to run all the pumps and all the utilities that they need, uh, they had to have backup power. And that's provided by diesel generators. So these diesel generators came on. But a little more than an hour after this, uh, the earthquake, the tsunami that was created by the earthquake came ashore. And that tsunami had something like 30-foot-high waves. Now, their tsunami wall, uh, they're built right at the coast, their tsunami wall was only good for maybe 20 feet. And you could say, well, why did they build it right at the coast? Well, they build it right at the coast. It's very uh, standard to do this in Japan because they need the seawater for the cooling. Um, so the tsunami overpowered their tsunami wall and uh, washed into the diesel generators. And, yeah, you can call that a design flaw. The diesel generators were at a point where water can actually shut them down. That's hap happened. So so the, the force of the tsunami caused a large amount of damage not just to the diesel generators but also to the pumps and to all the connecting pipes and so on and so that all went down uh, their backup to the backup was to have batteries but the batteries ran well depending on whose story you believe maybe four maybe eight hours longer and then they failed to deliver energy because as you know batteries don't last forever and so they frantically tried to get additional batteries in but all the roads were destroyed and um, the the effect then was that all the cooling broke down in the power plant. And when the cooling breaks down, uh, what happens is that um, the nuclear fission still goes on. They they hadn't stopped that because these uranium nuclei, they, they still continue to emit uh, their neutrons and they're captured by others. So the nuclear fission still goes on. And with that, a lot of heat uh, is liberated. Now, the heat needs to be transported away. And when you don't transport the heat away, what happens is that uh, well, the water that, that is around the nuclear rod starts boiling um, and then uh, go to steam and go to higher and higher pressure. And if you don't relieve that pressure, uh, what happens then is that cracks can develop in the safety containment vessel around the reactor. And um, what was perhaps even worse was that they had spent fuel rods that were stored in pools. And in particular, in reactor four, the spent fuel rods sit under maybe 20 feet of water. But the water continuously has to be circulated through because it gets heated by, by even the spent fuel rods that emit heat. And since they couldn't circulate the water anymore because, because the pumps weren't working, the water slowly evaporated. And when the water evaporates and the pool uh, dries out, then the fuel rods have no more way to get rid of their heat. Well. It's very inefficient to, to get rid of the heat to the air. And they heat up uh, above the point where they can ignite. And I think that's the most troublesome part of the entire uh, story in Fukushima, that uh, in reactor 4, uh, the, the, the spent fuel rods may have actually been burning. So when I know we've, there's been a lot of talk of the concern over the issue of radiation. Um, and we've heard of Three Mile Island, we've heard of Chernobyl, and this is all nuclear power. So, in, and now the U.S., or I've, I've heard a lot of people being concerned about the issue of nuclear power because now we have Japan's power plant, we've had Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. Should the U.S. be concerned over nuclear power because of these accidents? Yes, absolutely we should be concerned. I, I don't want to whitewash this. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not really pushing any particular energy form. Uh, what I'm worried about much more in the end is how much carbon dioxide are we emitting into the atmosphere. And um, that is about, um, you know, on the order of 10 billion tons per year. And uh, the question is how much longer can we afford to do that? But even if you go away from the carbon dioxide, um, in the year that uh, the Three Mile Island accident happened, and yes, it released some uh, radioactivity into the atmosphere, but the amount of radioactivity released in the atmosphere by coal-fired power plants in the U.S. alone in that same year was actually greater. So uh, coal-fired power plants are, are also uh, a source of radiation, and that receives very little press, actually. Mm. So, um, I mean, every energy source has its drawback. You know, last year's big accident... Um, many people have already forgotten, which was the Deepwater Horizon blow-up in the, in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, so all of these energy sources actually have risks. Um, 
even hydro. You know, the Three Gorges Dam in China is the biggest power plant in the world now. It produces 18 gigawatts, which is, um, uh, what, four times more than all the Fukushima nuclear reactors combined. Um, and you say, well, that's a very clean source of power. And that's true. But if that dam gets hit, gets hit by a nine-point earthquake and cracks, then actually many more lives are in jeopardy downstream. So, um, you know, every energy source that we tap into has some risk associated with it, and it's all about choices and making sure that, you know, we, we proceed as safely as possible. Now, you're talking about the, the BP oil spill, um, and now we're seeing gas prices rise because of what's happening in Libya. And, and we also just saw, you know, what happened in Japan with, with um, you know, the nuclear reactor at Fukushima. Um, and so we're, we want to talk about these new energy alternatives um, in comparison to fossil fuels, um, you know, with, with these rising gas prices. But at the same time, we're seeing disasters um, like what's happened at Fukushima. Um, what do you think will be the, the future of at least the United States um, as far as um, our energy source for the future? It has to be all of the above. So for the next 10, 20 years, I predict we cannot do without fossil energy sources. I mean, right now uh, we're getting 20% of our electricity from nuclear power, uh, a little more, maybe 25% from natural gas, um, uh, 45% or so from burning coal, like we do here at the MSU coal-fired power plant, for example. Uh, hydroelectric is on the order of, I think, 6%. And it's just about maxed out. We just cannot dam any more rivers. Um, and then renewables um, are actually half as much as hydro, maybe 3% altogether. So renewables would include wind and solar, uh, wood burning actually, geothermal, uh, biomass. All these we can do a lot more of, and other countries are doing that. For example, Great Britain is building a giant wind farm uh, offshore at the mouth of the Thames River outside of London, and it will produce 600 megawatts. Um, the cost is about comparable to nuclear power. I mean, nuclear power has become much more expensive because of Three Mile Island, because of Fukushima, because of terrorist threats. Um, but wind is, is competitive with that. And you, you say, well, okay, what, what if the wind doesn't blow? So Denmark gets actually a huge amount of, of its electrical power from wind. And when the wind blows, they actually use some of the electric power. They have uh, partnered with Norway because there is no mountains in Denmark. And in Norway, they pump water up the fjords. And when the wind doesn't blow, they let the water come down. So it's like a pump storage uh, power plant. And, and then that supplies the electrical energy for Denmark. So how effective do you th or sustainable is nuclear power in comparison to these renewables that you're talking about? Well, the sun shines always. Not so much here, not today, but say in Arizona or Nevada, uh, that's a really good source of power. So um, so you could say, well, okay, let's do photovoltaic. There's two troubles with photovoltaic. First, it relies on rare earth, which are in short, uh, in short supply and higher and higher demand. For example, China now says they don't want to uh, export rare earth anymore. Um, and it's still very expensive. So I can give you sort of a comparison for hydro, which is our cheapest energy form. The cost is less, you know, to build a hydro power plant is, is less than $1 per watt. Uh, for wind, it's maybe $3 per watt. For nuclear, um, the, the only construction, new construction that I know was this February 2010 loan guarantee. It's about $4 per watt. Uh, we can... Uh, do uh, biogas power plants also about three to four dollars per watt, but solar power, large-scale solar power, photovoltaic solar power, is something like fifteen dollars per watt. Now, okay, maybe ten dollars per watt, but it's vastly more expensive. Now, the Obama administration just has announced the goal of getting that cost down to one dollar per watt. Now, if you could get that down to one dollar per watt, then that really provides almost limitless energy. So that's one of the sort of the big moonshots that we're working on right now. 
Well, in the studio is Wolfgang Bauer. He is with the Department of Physics and Astronomy, and he was here to talk about nuclear power. Professor Bauer, thank you so much for joining us tonight. You're welcome. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we, uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could, uh... Would you ever want to, um... <coughs> I was wondering if you... If I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, <clears throat> I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. That's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No! Don't touch me! What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Studies show that three quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Or at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Primetime. Now, back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is Dan Mickle. He is Assistant Professor of Commercial Recreation and Tourism, and he is in to talk about this year's forecasted recovery of Michigan's tourism industry. Welcome to the show, Dan Mickle. Thank you. So what is the forecast? Well, um, we forecast uh, three different things. We forecast volume, which is the number of people traveling around the state. We forecast spending, which is how much money those people are spending, and we forecast prices. And, and so we see that there's going to be a rise in tourism. Yes. Um, now, you should understand that we had a, a last year was also a rise in tourism, uh, but that was coming off of two years where there was a steep decline. And the, the rises that we're seeing are, are modest, but they're positive and they're heading in the right direction, which is a good sign. So have, have tourism numbers been rising over the years with um, the with the Pure Michigan campaign since that's been around, or let's say the years where we got hit by the session, did we see less tourism? Yeah, the Pure Michigan campaign has been a very successful campaign, but it's only been around for, oh, I think four years or so. Um, and it came around and was widely acclaimed, um, and it really seemed to uh, to have the right message for folks. folks but it came at a time during the recession. Now, that's sort of good news and bad news. Um, tourism doesn't do real well in a recession because it relies on discretionary income. You know, if people don't have as much money, uh, but, you know, you question whether they're going to, how are they going to travel? Is that going to be different? You know, it's not a high priority. Well, it is a high priority for people, but not compared to rent and, and food. Um, but at the same time, the, the, re- the recession that we had uh, and, and actually, the last 10 years in Michigan were, were hard on Michigan. And so Michigan's tourism industry, which used to be able to rely on Michiganders traveling around the state, all of a sudden needed to attract people from outside the state. And so the Pure Michigan campaign has done a good job of doing that. So that's actually helped us um, make it through the reception, uh, through the recession. So we did see some down years. We're seeing growth now. And part of that growth will be because of the Pure Michigan campaign, we suspect. And has tourism even increased since we've been losing population in Michigan? That's why we're pulling people from other states? Well, uh, not necessarily. Our our biggest year um, uh, for tourism spending uh, was in 2006. And since then, it's been declining. Um, And uh, last last year was probably the first year of growth. We don't have those numbers in yet uh, as far as total spending. But uh, there was 2009 would have been the the lowest year, and now we're starting to climb out of it. But it'll take a while before we get to 2006 levels. And what are Michigan's biggest tourism destinations? Oh, uh, well, you know, it it depends. Certainly, if you're talking about business tourism, it would be southeast Michigan. People are traveling there for business all the time. And uh, beyond that, you know, to the other metropolitan areas we have, Grand Rapids, Ann Arbor, Lansing, uh, that sort of thing. When you're talking about leisure tourism, um, most people think up up north. Um, Certainly, Traverse City is a big area. The the biggest one single attraction um, that is recognized uh, from people around the country that they associate with Michigan is uh, Mackinac Island. 
Now, when when you think about now that we're kind of getting out of the recession um, and people have a little more money now, um, are they willing to spell, spend more on vacations or on material items? Ah, that's a good question. You know, one of the things we saw in the recession was really interesting. 2009, I mentioned, was uh, a bad year for, for tourism, uh, specifically tourism spending. And what was interesting is there was only – there was – in Michigan, we saw only a 1% drop, actually a little less than 1% drop in the number of people traveling around the state. But we saw an almost 14% decrease in spending. So people were still traveling around the state. They just weren't spending as much. So maybe they were taking shorter trips. Maybe they were camping versus staying in a motel. Maybe they were staying with friends and family. There were a number of things they were doing. But the interesting thing from that we learned from that is that people prioritized vacation and, and experiences over uh, over material goods. And, and the thought on that is uh, something I, I call emotional efficiency. They figured out the most happiness they can get from their dollar. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you get happiness from travel for, for a number of reasons. One, uh, you, you tend to do it with friends and family, and we know that social interaction makes us happy. Um, the other thing is reminiscence. When we take a trip, we remember it. And that reminiscence, uh, studies have shown, leads to long-term happiness. Uh, and the other thing is anticipation. Now, it used to be when we would purchase material goods uh, back, you know, our, our parents and grandparents, we would save for it. Uh, would save up for it. And there was anticipation, getting ready to buy that new TV, you know, we'll save for six months or a new bicycle. Uh, nowadays, we just buy things on credit. And that's the same with travel. But the difference with travel is uh, we have to still anticipate it because we need that vacation time. So we're planning for that trip that we're going to take this summer or over spring break or next weekend. And so anticipation also leads to happiness. So, Dan, Mick Cole, you're, you're talking about um, an upsurge in, um, in travel this year, tourism to Michigan. Um, but do you think that, that these higher gas prices will hinder travel at all? Well, you know, that's a concern. Um, you know, and it's something we, we've thought quite a bit about. Uh, you know, your previous guest talked about, uh, you know, the long-term effect of fossil fuels. Our, our forecast is looking at what's going to happen this summer. And, and certainly gas prices are going to be more expensive than they were last summer. Um, but we don't, if, uh, we don't expect it to have too much of, of an effect on travel, and, and there are a few reasons why. First of all, the people who are traveling this summer are the people who are in uh, pretty good financial condition. There are a lot of people who are not in good financial condition. There are still a lot of unemployed people in the state and, and throughout the country. Um, but when we're looking at the people who are traveling, they, they tend to be a little more secure in their financial spot. So a little bit more in gas may not make a difference. Secondly, um, vacations, kind of what I talked about, vacations are an expectation now. You know, people are going to prioritize that. So even if it's a little more expensive, it's going to be. And then, you know, thirdly, you look at the incremental cost. And if you look at a round trip, let's say gas ends up at $4 a gallon this summer. Around the added expense over last year of a trip from Grand Rapids to Mackinac Bridge and back is about $32. Um, from Indianapolis, it's about $66. To, so Indianapolis to the Mackinac Bridge and back. So the question is, is that too much to keep people from traveling? And probably not. And there's one other uh, thing in there. For, uh, there will be people who will stop traveling, for sure. But we think that that might be made up by people who say, you know what, we were planning on driving out to the Grand Canyon this year. Maybe we won't do that this year. We'll stay in Michigan. Or uh, people who are planning on taking a flight vacation this summer, and they don't do that because airline prices are more expensive because of the high fuel. And where does tourism rank in Michigan as far as our industries? Well, you know, tour, it, it, one of the reasons it's uh, it's difficult to quantify this, uh, it, you know, it's certainly one of our top three industries. Um, and it, it's one that the governor has prioritized as being a, a big, important part of our economic mix going forward. But it's difficult to quantify uh, because imagine, you know, we were just talking about Traverse City. Uh, imagine a restaurant in Traverse City. Um, you know, some of the spending that goes on at that restaurant is related to tourism, the tourists who go and eat there. But there are also locals who eat there. So, you know, trying to quantify exactly what uh, activity is related to tourism is very difficult to do. Um, but it's certainly one of the world's largest um, industries. Uh, some would say the largest industry. Uh, and it's certainly an important part of the state's overall economic mix. Now, how, how accurate have your predictions been for forecasting uh, tourism in the state been um, in previous years? Well, we've been doing this for quite some time. Um, I, I just joined the team last year. 
but the uh, our, our forecasts have generally been pretty good, with two exceptions. Um, one was 2001, uh, 9/11. We we were predicting continued growth. 9/11 happened. Everybody stopped traveling. Um, you know, there was no way of anticipating that. And there are always wild cards when we do these forecasts. The, the other time was uh, during the recession. We predicted a decrease. Uh, we, th we knew that there was going to be a decrease, but the decrease in spending ended up being much more than we predicted, uh, an almost 14% decrease in spending. I think we pr uh, predicted 6%. Last year, we were right on the mark with our, our, our forecast for the year, and, and hopefully this year we will be too. Actually, I wouldn't mind if we sort of underestimated the growth. Yeah. And my final question is, is there any trip that you're looking forward to in the state in the coming months? Oh, well, you know, I always look forward to going up to the Sleeping Bear Dunes area. Um, I have friends coming in from the Washington, D.C. area, and we're going to show them Michigan. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll certainly go up to Sleeping Bear Dunes. We'll also go to Mackinac Island and to Petoskey um, and show them around here in Lansing. Well, on the show is Dan McColl. He's Assistant Professor of Commercial Recreation and Tourism, and he was in to talk about this year's forecasted recovery of Michigan's tourism industry. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Emily. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You wouldn't send a text while using a chainsaw. Check out these pics of this huge tree falling. You probably wouldn't text while scuba diving. And you definitely wouldn't send a text while making out. You are so smoking hot. I love your elbows. Wait, hold on a second. Huh? I need to send this. OMG, I'm like totally kissing him right now. Dude, what the f***? So why would you send a text while driving? Well, that's different. That's what about 6,000 people who died last year said. Oh. And now, it's illegal in Michigan to read, type, or send any text from your phone while driving. It's a $100 fine for the first offense and 200 bucks after that. Ouch. Check out Michigan House Bill 4394. Be a part of the solution and save a life. And seriously, put the phone away while you're making out. Bunny. You need help. 88.9 The Impact. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, in the studio is Salah Hassan from the Department of English and the Muslim Studies Program, and he is back again this month to talk about the unrest in Libya. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So last we spoke was right after um, Egypt was able to overthrow the government. So give us a little review of what has happened in Libya rather than in Egypt. And also that was, that was around the same time that things started happening in Libya as well. But what has happened in Libya since we last spoke? Okay, well, let me just uh, begin by saying Libya uh, is bordered by Tunisia and Egypt. And um, the, the Arab popular democratic movements began first in mid-January in Tunisia. Then they spread subsequently to... Egypt uh, and uh, Hosni Mubarak was overthrown in mid-February, and around that time, uh, the Libyan popular uprisings began, and they began uh, mostly first in the eastern part of the country, which borders on Egypt in, in the city of Benghazi, which is the second city, and uh, it uh, then spread to other other places. And these these initial uh, protests looked very much like what we saw in Tunisia. And in Egypt, and I think a lot of people suspected that there would be um, a groundswell of support among opposition and even within the ranks of the Gaddafi regime, and that Gaddafi would be ousted fairly quickly, uh, given um, you know his particular uh, type of leadership. Uh, let me call it just a little bit uh, idiosyncratic, uh, and uh, uh, so. This didn't happen, and, and what, we, what we've seen is a kind of protracted struggle for the last month, um, going into the fifth week now, uh, within Libya, with lots of complications and making this situation very different from the situation uh, in Tunisia or in Egypt. So what I read recently was that Muammar de 
Dr. Gaddafi has been quoted saying that the Libyan people love him and will die to protect him. And do you really believe that he that he truly thinks that? I don't know if if he thinks that or if that's part of a state discourse that has been in place for a long time, really since he rose to power. Uh, he took power in 1969 and has been in power ever since. There is a um, cult of leadership in Libya that is um, quite remarkable in the sense that young people, it's now over um, you know, 40 years, have grown up with Gaddafi as the figurehead of the government and his image is present. And he came to power as a young man and has, um, you know, really provided a, a certain kind of paternalistic presence in Libya. I do believe that there are people who remain convinced that he is the one and only leader for Libya. Um, but as obviously not all Libyans, the opposition movement is quite substantial and continues to uh, work against his leadership. So why were there, was there a no-fly zone issued for Libya, and what does that mean by a no-fly zone? Okay, well, if you look at the history of this uprising beginning in mid-February, uh, the uh, opposition was very successful, and the Gaddafi regime looked incredibly disorganized. There were uh, mercenaries brought in from various parts of Africa and also from Europe to fight and put down the uh, opposition movement in order to avoid using the uh, regular uh, uh, Libyan army. And um, those mercenaries were unsuccessful. Subsequently, what happened was the Gaddafi regime reorganized militarily and undertook a massive campaign. And this has been really in the last 10 days or week or so, uh, retaking cities that had previously been under the control of the opposition forces. And as the opposition lost ground, the international community looked at the situation with great concern uh, in the UN and deemed that a humanitarian crisis was about to take place should the uh, Libyan army uh, take control of Benghazi. And it was at that point when the UN voted unanimously, um, uh, well, not quite unanimously, but without uh, with abstentions, without any veto, the UN Security Vo uh, Council voted to uh, endorse a no-fly zone. What a no-fly zone represents is a attempt to uh, control the um, the airspace of of a country by foreign powers, and so it is an act of war. And um, the UN's pretext was that this was being instituted to protect Libyan civilians. The one complication there is a number of people who have have noted. Uh, people in the U.S. and other commentators who um, are critical of the imposition of a no-fly zone on Libya is that in order to institute a no-fly zone, uh, there are aerial bombardments of the country, and as such, civilians are bound to be caught up in those bombardments. And it has happened that Libyans have been killed, civilian Libyans have been killed uh, in the last few days that the imposition of the no-fly zone has uh, been um, taking place. So what I thought was a no-fly zone is that no one can fly over Libya. But then I was confused when all of a sudden you hear about these airstrikes in which people are bombing Libya. And I said, well, how can you bomb it if there's a no-fly zone? Well, it's a no-fly zone for the Libyan army. Okay. And for anybody who wants to fly into Libya and provide aid to the Libyan army. So let's say, for example, there was a country that wanted to supply Libya with arms and they wanted to fly them in there uh, to Tripoli, uh, that aircraft would not be allowed to land. Uh, and uh, so there would be radio communication with military, with the Air Force, with the American Air Force, which is patrolling the no-fly zone, and to say that, that they, they're not allowed to land in Tripoli and force them to land elsewhere. And, and if they didn't do that, then they would have the authority granted by the United Nations to shoot down that airplane. So what would happen if Libya does go into the air. I mean, it, what are the consequences of doing something like that when there's a no-fly zone? Right. Precisely what I said is if, if the Libyan Air Force attempts to uh, use its own national airspace to uh, mount a campaign against the opposition in Benghazi, then the um, uh, Air Forces, as part of this coalition, this UN-endorsed coalition, which includes France, the United States, uh, and Canada, Britain, if those countries they can launch their aircraft from uh, bases in Italy and Qatar, but also from the sea where they have ships patrolling, and they can shoot down those planes. So what we saw in Egypt was you see these protests, and then the leader was able to step, step down. In this case, 
there's a lot more going on here. Um, countries are getting involved in this. Why is it that Gaddafi won't step down as easily as what we saw in Egypt? Well, you know, he has a particular type of personality that is, you know, not one that he will, he's not going to surrender to foreign pressure. There's no, there's no history of him surrendering to foreign pre- pressure, and he's been subject to significant foreign pressure. Um, some of your listeners may re- remember that in the 80s, the United States uh, under Ronald Reagan bombed Libya and then subsequently uh, imposed sanctions against Libya, and Libya was considered a state supporter of terrorism for some time. And yet Libya continued uh, to function uh, trade relations with Europe. Uh, so, so there has been pressure on Libya from the U.S. for, for in the past. In the, like around 2004, 2005, Gaddafi was able to redeem himself, reestablish relationships with the United States, and then re-enter the fold of the international community. And so he, he, he sort of, he was able to live out that pressure and re-emerge as a figure of, um, you know, some kind of, with some kind of credibility. Um, everyone knowing full well that he was authoritarian and dictatorial and had committed human rights abuse and other other things to uh, on his own people. So he's there's no evidence that he'll he'll give in to international pressure. The other thing is it's not really clear to what degree he actually has support within the military. It would seem that at this point even though there has been some um some military officials who have uh you know, departed from him and have been critical of him and have joined the opposition, uh, by and large, the structure of Libyan uh, governing uh, institutions allows him to retain control. And he has um, he has managed that very effectively with the support of his sons and other close advisors. And so, so right now, it doesn't seem like there's anybody inside who's close enough to displace him, remove him from power. And so he, he's, he's, he continues to operate. Um, uh, as the leader, I think the third thing that's important is that he does have some international support, or at least some people who see his situation as being a situation that they would not like to see imposed on them. So uh, I, I wouldn't say that this is exactly the case for some of the other Arab leaders, but one can imagine that if um, it, that it's not necessarily in the interest of other Arab dictators to see Gaddafi removed in this manner. And so um, in some ways he continues to hold a certain kind of position um, and other leaders as well. I mean, Fidel Castro said that the U.S. and European bombing of, uh, of Libya was an outrage. And so, you, you know, you, you do have this sense of that this is a, is a kind of neo-colonial adventure on the part of American and European powers to seize the oil assets of Libya. I don't think that's the case, but that is one of the reasons. So he can now emerge under in this situation, not as a tyrant, but as somebody who's fighting against the strongest military machines in the world, the United States and Europe. And so so this is a, a kind of irony of, of the situation that the UN decision and, and the action of the U.S. and its allies has, has produced. A blogger for the Huffington Post said that even if Gaddafi stepped down, a civil war may continue because of the regional and ideological and tribal divisions that are going on in the country. Yeah. Um, yeah, other, yeah, that's there is a civil war. I mean, right now we are looking at a civil war. It's not very well organized on either side, uh, but there is something very much what we would call like a, a quasi-civil war. There are two sides. Um, the country is more or less divided. Um, and uh, and it, and the, one of the arguments for keeping Gaddafi and that his argument has been and his sons have argued this is that without him, the country will fall apart. You know, I think that that's... Um, that there, there's certainly a risk of par- a partitioning of Libya. I think that the creation of the no-fly zone is is going to uh, reinforce that. As we saw in, in, in Iraq, something similar happened when they imposed a no-fly zone on the south and the north of Iraq. That the the um, result was to produce a kind of Kurdish zone in the north that was protected and um, has had some enduring impact on Iraq. Uh, now, there, Iraq isn't partitioned formally, but there is a sense that the northern part, the Kurdish part, is separate. And that, that, that part of Iraq had been protected by a no-fly zone from um, the early 1990s until 2003. So I remember when you came on the show last month, that was the day that the gas prices rose up to $3.40, the highest that we've seen 
maybe even ever. Um, But I recently read, and you said that that was because of what was going on in Libya, because of their oil supply. But I recently read that Libyan oil represents less than 2% of the world's daily supply of oil. And that's compared to 25% of that that the Saudis have control over. So then why then are gas prices rising when it's only 2% of our daily supply? Yeah, um, right. I I think that the the point to be made is that it's not so much that supply is being threatened. It's because the Saudis have actually increased uh, production in order to compensate for whatever losses. It's more the general sense of of political instability in a region of the world where oil is the main one of the main foreign policy interests on the part of uh, industrialized countries. And so the concern is more like the the kind of ripple effect politically. So my point wasn't so much about the importance or significance of Libyan supply, but really the um, generalized effect on investors and markets and that kind of thing. And so this kind of instability creates uh, fear, anxiety, and as a result, a kind of uh, market hysteria. So that that that's I think the implication. But it, it shouldn't it shouldn't be uh, misunderstood. I think there is profiteering going on, and in this situation, on the part of the oil companies, they can use this as a way of justifying higher prices, and they can say, well, it's not our fault. It's it's the instability in the region. And so then, instead of being mad at the oil companies, you're mad at these Libyans or at Gaddafi or at these Arabs. And, and so it, it's, it's a way of deflecting. Uh, and certainly ExxonMobil and Chevron and Shell are profiting in this situation, I have no doubt. Now, what happens as we've seen this unrest go from Egypt and, and all over the country and, and in the Middle East as well as Northern Africa, do you think that, that these types of unrest situations and protests are going to spread to Saudi Arabia? Well, Saudi Arabia, certainly there's a possibility. There have been attempts to organize protests in Saudi Arabia. They've been brutally repressed. Uh, But the neighboring country, Bahrain and Yemen, also on the borders of Saudi Arabia, there are protests there regularly. The violence of um, repression in Bahrain and Yemen, it's interesting that, uh, you know, when um, the action to impose the no-fly zone took place, those were two days when the government of Bahrain and the government of Yemen cracked down on protesters most severely. Those two countries are allied with the U.S., the governments of those two countries. So while Gaddafi was undertaking his operation against his opposition and the U.S. was supporting the U.N. operation against Gaddafi, other U.S. allies, Bahrain and Yemen, were brutally repressing their pro-democracy movements. Now, Hillary Clinton did speak out against what was happening in Bahrain. But nevertheless, the um, U.S. government and the U.N. did nothing to protect those protesters and has done nothing to protect the protesters in Yemen. And so uh, there, there is a deep concern about the contradiction in foreign policy there. Like, why is it okay for Bahrain, the king of Bahrain, or the president of Yemen to uh, brutally repress pro-democracy movements in those countries but it's not okay for Gaddafi. And so it's very easy for Gaddafi and his supporters to point out that contradiction and uh, to, to use that against the UN and to, against the United States and its allies. Well, in the studio, Salah Hassan from the Department of English and the Muslim Studies Program. And again, he has come back to this month to talk about the unrest in Libya. Thank you so much for joining us again. Okay, thanks, Emma. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Smoking Helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want MySmokeFreeApartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building? Without all that smoking? Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. MySmokeFreeApartment.org. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. 
Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And up next, Impact Asian Invasion host Elise Yoon presents a special feature on the Korean wave. In recent years, South Korean popular culture has come to dominate the Asian continent. The phenomenon, called Hallyu or the Korean Wave, refers to the consumption of South Korean music, TV shows, movies, and celebrities by other countries in Asia, and even as far away as France, Brazil, Mexico, and the United States. AllKpop.com is an English site following the world of Korean popular culture. AllKpop's Matt Kim has watched the trend grow enormously in the past few years. We wanted to pretty much do what we're doing now, is where we're just translating Korean entertainment in English, so you know more of a bigger audience can be more involved with Korean entertainment. The majority of our you know over three million readers are going to be from the U.S., um, Canada, England. You know, we're huge in Singapore and in the Philippines where English is is pretty prominent language. It could be in Africa or it could be in Eastern Europe or even Europe in general where, you know, even English isn't the first language there. Fans of Korean pop music are extremely devoted. Concert tickets sell out in mere seconds. Fans brag about buying a hundred or more copies of their favorite artist's new album. They wait hours in line for a chance to see a glimpse of their idols outside a television or studio visit. Korean music especially is is just well produced I guess well um, I'd hate to use the word manufactured but you know the, the Korean entertainment business is great at marketing their artists in fact it's not only the entertainment industry but also the South Korean government who helps to actively export popular culture to nearby Japan China Taiwan Vietnam and the Philippines the government encourages foreign consumption of Korean popular culture which leads to an interest in Korean products and tourism. The Korean boy band Dongbang Shinki are wildly popular throughout Asia. Dongbang Shinki, as they are known in China, and Toho Shinki, as they are known in Japan, have released four albums in their native Korean and four in Japanese, as well as numerous mini-albums, including a recent release in English. They're, um, I guess, what made the wave go even crazier. Right when, you know, DBSK came out, they became a little more international, and, and I think that's when the wave kind of started, where the Korean entertainment business was kind of saying, hey, you know, we can actually get a lot more a bigger audience um, than just the Korean people. Oh, 
The group made it into the Guinness Book of World Records for having the world's largest fan club. The club, called Cassiopeia, has over 800,000 members in South Korea alone, a remarkable number in a nation of only a little over 50 million people. Like many K-pop artists, the boys spend extended periods abroad promoting their music. The Korean wave has even been making its way to America. The Wonder Girls have toured in the U.S. several times, once with the Jonas Brothers in 2009, playing sold-out arena dates. The girls spent some time living in America, making appearances on TV shows, and their hit single, Nobody, was even named number one on the year-end charts hot single sales by Billboard. It's The Wonder Girls aren't the only ones riding the Korean wave over to our side of the world. In 2007, Stephen Colbert began a pseudo-rivalry with Rain, known as B in his native Korea. Time asked its readers to select their own list of the 100 most influential people in the world, and I'm right at the top at number two. What? Who's at number one? It can't be. My old nemesis, 24-year-old Korean R&B pop sensation, Rain. Rain! I've battled this guy on the Korean pop charts for years. He's always gotten the best of me. Since 2007, Colbert has mentioned Rain on the show several times. Rain even made an appearance when the two had a dance-off on the show. Before Rain even got popular in the U.S., he was doing these little tidbits with Stephen Colbert. I just thought they were hilarious, but I'm sure people were like wondering who this guy was. Why is Stephen Colbert having to battle this random Asian guy? Asian-American hip-hop group Far East Movement have burst onto the American pop charts with their song Like a G6. Matt Kim sees Asian-American artists as a gateway for the American market to eventually become more open to Korean artists. It, it's gone a long way. Ten years ago, you, you probably wouldn't have thought anything. You know, it was just, oh, it's their music. But the big thing is that the Asian-Americans that are starting to come up, you know, like Bruno Mars, who's, you know, half Filipino, and then Far East Movement. It's the first time in history where there were Asian artists that were number one and two on the Billboard charts ever. And I think it's hopefully just getting better and better from that point. This feature was written and produced by Elise Yu. Special thanks to Matt Kim for his interview. Music performed by Girls' Generation, Kara, 2PM, FX, Hungban Shinki, Wonder Girls, Rain, Stephen Colbert, and Far East Movement. Audio clips from ColbertNation.com. You're listening to Impact Exposure. 
You are tuned to Impact Exposure for this week's Michigan Storytelling segment. We'll feature the third annual Festival of Listening. It'll be held at Scene Metrospace this Friday at 7 p.m. In the studio is Jessica Johnson and Freddie Rodriguez Mejia to talk about the event. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. So what is the Festival of Listening? The Festival of Listening is um, an annual event put on by the Poetry Center, and it features uh, numerous poets reading in different languages. Um, we also have a variety of food and uh, an amazing Arabic fusion group named Whistle. So it's going to be—it's only going to—it's going to be poetry, all in foreign languages. Correct. And will there be translations as well? No, there may be a brief introduction by the poets, but the. Words will all be in another language. And do you think that the meaning of the poem is lost at all with there not to be a translation? Or do you think it's preserved better? <laughs> I think it's preserved better. If, you know, and the idea is to sort of get to the music of the poems, and so we'll have people introduce the name of, of, of the poet and the language in which the poem is going to be read. And so that, the idea is to get to the music without trying to get much of the meaning. By saying the music, you mean the music of the poem, the way that it's delivered? The yes. way that the, the language sort of dictates yeah. the, the music of the poem. The original the, rhythm. I see. Well, without further ado, Freddie, would you be willing to read one of your poems? Absolutely. The name of this poem is uh, Retrato de un poema pretencioso en desesperación. Portrait of a pretentious poet in despair. Cuando leí a Pablo Neruda, decidí que sí. Me gusta cuando te expandes como el mundo. Y sí, esta noche me gustaría ser invadido por tu poderosa armada. When I read Pablo Neruda, I decided that yes, I like it when you stretch out like the world. And yes, tonight I would like to be invaded by your powerful army. Cuando leí a Roberto Bolaño, me dieron unas terribles ganas de llorar. Y lo hice. Pensé en Navidades de Guatemala, unos niños borrachos que caminaban por el asfalto crudo por calles tan oscuras como agujeros negros, pensé en el fin de la humanidad. When I read Roberto Bolaño, I felt a terrible need to cry. And I did. I thought about Christmases in Guatemala, some drunken children walking out on the new raw asphalt, on streets that were as dark as black holes. I thought about the end of humanity. Cuando leía Sylvia Plath, quise escribir con la vulnerabilidad y diafaridad de un poeta preocupado. Escribir, por ejemplo, anoche tomé dos botellas de Rioja, hoy me siento enfermo y me gustaría estar solo. When I read Sylvia Plath, I wanted to write with the vulnerability and the pollutedness of a troubled poet. Write, for example, last night I drank two bottles of Rioja, today I feel sick and I would like to be alone. Cuando leí a Saul Williams, la antigua casa de la poesía se vino abajo. Ahora tuvo que ver con la música, el teatro, las flores, las palabras habladas, todas juntas como una sinfonía informal. When I read Saul Williams, the ancient house of poetry crumbled down. Now it was about the music, the theater, the flowers, the spoken word, all together like an informal symphony. Cuando leía a Eduardo Galeano, una historia diferente pasó enfrente de mí. Recordé a una mujer indígena que conocí. Ella habló. Y lloró y dijo, Vengo de un lugar donde solamente hay polvo, los árboles más tristes del mundo, la poesía más dolorosa, allá está. When I read Eduardo Galeano, a different history passed before me. I remembered an indigenous woman I met. She talked and wept and said, I come from a place where there is only dust, the most melancholic trees in the world, and the most dolorous poetry you've ever heard is there. Ya cuando leí a Nicanor Parra, quise que este fuera un antipoema, limpio y sin arrogancia alguna, pero fue muy tarde. Cerré con mi último sorbo de café, tratando de leer mi destino en el fondo de la taza. Y allí, entre rayas y burbujas cristalizadas, me encontré junto a todos los poetas del mundo, hombres y mujeres vestidos de blanco. By the time I read Nicanor Parra, I wanted this to be an anti-poem, clean and free of pretentiousness, but it was too late. I closed with my last sip of coffee, trying to read my fate in the bottom of the cup. There, amid lines and crystallized bubbles, I found myself right next to all of the poets in the world, men and women, dressed in white. 
And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was Freddy Rodriguez Mejia reading um, one of his poems that will be featured at the Festival of Listening and with translation, that was Jessica Johnson. Now, we only have a few seconds left, but I really wanted to ask this question. Freddy, you're getting um, your PhD in anthropology here at MSU. Mm-hmm. You were born in Honduras. Mm-hmm. You're a poet. Um, I was also in an anthropology class earlier this year, um, and we discussed the issue of people writing in their foreign language and having to translate in order for it to be accessible. But through the translation, it loses some of its meanings, like some phrases or certain words aren't translatable. You can't portray that meaning in a different language. So do you find that to be true? Like tonight we had a translation which won't happen at the Festival of Listening. Did you find Mm -hmm. that a lot of that meaning was lost through a translation? Absolutely. I think especially when uh, a lot of the language that you use to write the poem it's original and it's so local. It's very difficult. Uh, one way to that I go around doing that is by actually using the original words in, in the Spanish to put them in the English and use footnotes instead of attempting to do a translation that will not do justice to the actual expression. I see. Well, again, for our listeners, um, for the Michigan Storytelling segment, we highlighted the third annual Festival of Listening, which will be held at Scene Metrospace this Friday at 7 p.m. For more information, you can go to www.rcah.msu.edu backslash poetry. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. Thank you so much for listening tonight. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.